So let's get into the book. Uh, the first thing I'd like to say, our author is Micah. We know this because it says so in verse 1. Um, we believe that Micah was uh, a prophet around 739 to 686 B.C. Uh, we believe this because of the kings he mentions, uh, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who lived during this time. This also makes him a contemporary prophet to Isaiah and Hosea. And if you'll remember uh, a couple weeks back when Aaron went through Hosea, this was a time of great prosperity for the nations of Israel and Judah. The audience for the book of Micah is Jerusalem and Samaria. Uh, we know these are the audience because Micah mentions them specifically by name. Um, these two cities are the capitals of Israel and Judah. So here's the outline of the book. Micah is written in a similar fashion to that of a lawyer presenting a case, addressing first the nations as a whole, then the leaders, and then the individuals making up the nation itself. The purpose of Micah is to warn of an impending judgment for Judah and Israel and to give hope to all of those who repent and wait upon the Lord's righteousness. The theme of Micah, although it's not specifically mentioned, is righteousness. I'm going to uh, be reading the entire book to you guys today, stopping every once in a while to explain a couple things or go a little bit further in detail. All right. So, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down from a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? So the heights of the earth are the places where people would tend to build their altars to the various gods. Jehovah God walking upon them indicates his superiority over those false gods. The two cities, Jerusalem and Samaria, like I said, they're the capitals of Israel and Judah. And these are the places of rampant unrighteousness, whether it's by perverse worship or injustice. And the same wickedness spread across all of their countries. If we continue, Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return." For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. So I'd like to say one of the kings that's mentioned, King Ahaz, is one of the most wicked kings to ever reign in Judah. During his time, he built the idols uh, in the temples, and he even took uh, he even took his in unrighteousness as far as to nail the doors shut just to defy God. 
Micah mentions these sins in Samaria and that they were great enough to influence even God's city of Jerusalem. This caused the nation of Judah to fall into an overall state of unrighteousness. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Bethlehem. Roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Za'anan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Marath wait anxiously for good. Because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Morasheth Gath. The houses of Achzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. So Micah's warning of judgment on each of these cities, but he's using their names as puns. Shafir means pleasant, Za'anan means come out, and Maroth means bitter. All these names are ironic in the words of Micah because of their specific kind of judgment. Lachish was a city on the Philistine border, and they practiced their ways but they didn't realize that their actions were being emulated. In the same day, in the same way, whether we realize it or not, we are leaders and everything we say and do is being watched and followed. So we need to be careful, unlike Lachish, about what we're doing. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merishah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adalam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle for they shall go from you into exile. Micah is describing here the devastating sorrow that parents would experience as they watch their children be taken away from them into captivity. The worst time that this happened was when Israel and Judah were both completely conquered. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. Evil thoughts lead to evil deeds. Those things which you think about when you lay down to sleep greatly reflect your character, as it did with these people. The people in positions of power often take advantage of others, both in the past and today, whether it's with superior weaponry, a political support, or just simply being richer. An example in the Bible is uh, King Ahab. He wanted a vineyard, but his owner wouldn't sell it. So his wife Jezebel killed the owner of the vineyard. And so he got what he wanted. This was a a symbol of social injustice. One man oppressing another just because he had it within his power to do so. An example in our modern times would actually be uh, Hitler's genocide of the Jews during World War II. One man in a position of power, fueled by hate, using his power to destroy people he did not like. This is social injustice at its maximum form. This kind of injustice, though, was rampant in those times, and very little was done to change it. 
So it spread until it was one of the many descriptions of God's chosen people. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast in the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? People in all ages love false prophets, the people who will tell them to be comfortable in their sin and even encourage them to continue in it. Micah opposed these prophets because a true teacher of God will tell the truth no matter what the listeners really want to hear. But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The woman of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with the grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be a preacher for this people. The words in this chapter may seem a little harsh, but it's not that God wants to utterly destroy his people. He's telling them of their unrighteousness so that they can turn around and be righteous. He's not bringing judgment upon them to destroy them. It's not to harm them. It's to direct them. It's much like a parent. When a parent directs and disciplines their child, it's not to harm them, but to guide them to a good life. When God speaks like this, when he speaks harshly, it would be good for us to stop and listen to the harsh words. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture. A noisy multitude of men, he who opens the breach, goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. This prophecy is of two events. The first is the return from Babylonian captivity, and the second is the coming of the Messiah. The one instant, this is one of the instances in which the prophets were shown something that would happen, but not when or how, only that it would. But this is also one of the things that would give the people hope during their captivity. It would also help them to turn away from their sin. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them, and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. This is where Micah begins to specifically focus on the leaders of Israel and Judah. As part of their training, the kings were supposed to learn and meditate on the law day and night so that they would be able to guide the people in righteousness. More so than the kings, the spiritual leaders had to do this as well. But here we see that's not happening. 
Indeed, these same leaders who were meant to guide in righteousness were often the cause of injustice, all because of their own personal desires. Because of this, God would refuse to hear them when they were in trouble. He would not swoop to the aid of those causing harm when they should be a guide. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Often false prophets would make their messages appeal to those who would give them favors, making them very easy to listen to, and they often had a large following. But Micah declares that his ministry is fueled by the Holy Spirit, which gives his words far more credibility, and he holds far more power in his messages. We are also filled with the Holy Spirit, and only when we rely on him can we effectively uh, live and witness for God. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain a house of a wooded height. As Micah states, the leaders, priests, and prophets of the time were not necessarily opposed to bribes. It's easy for people to overlook evil when the price is right. But as Christians, the price should never be right for us. Our God is a God of righteousness, and to accept a bribe would be to accept unrighteous behavior. But even though the leaders, priests, and prophets would accept the bribes, the average person had the ability to stop it. When they chose not to, judgment fell upon Judah just as it had with Israel. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and decide for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, 
hill of the daughter of Zion. To you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. This is another dual prophecy, one to be fulfilled by the remnant after the Babylonian captivity, when the Jews would return to Judah and form it once again into a nation. And the other is a description of God's reign over his people, which has not yet come to pass, but is something that we look forward to eagerly. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished, that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves on the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. In this, Micah is making a couple of drastic statements to Judah the first of which is that the days of their king would end. In the mind of the Israelites, of the Jews, their kingdom was invincible. The line of their kings would last forever. As I mentioned earlier, during this time, they were experiencing great prosperity and wealth. They didn't think they had anything to worry about for a long time. Another drastic statement is that Micah identifies Babylon as the nation responsible for Judah's fall. The people of Judah, if they thought any nation could possibly cause them much trouble, they thought it would be Assyria. Babylon defeating Judah would have been, in the minds of the Jews, the equivalent of the Mongols taking over Japan. It might have been possible, but with the countries and distance in between, it would have been very difficult to do. So it never crossed the minds of the kings of Judah to worry about Babylon. They had Assyria to worry about. But then it happened. And the people, uh, when Judah fell, the people had hope that God would still bring them back. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is an interesting part of Micah's prophecy that is almost entirely about Jesus. It mentions in the first verse the fall of the last king of Jerusalem in David's lineage. This was probably Zedekiah, who was the last king before the Babylonian Empire came through. But then it goes on to talk about the Messiah, a king from David's line who would rise from Bethlehem and whose reign would be without end of days. He was the only king who could truly save Jerusalem. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, 
Then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. This is a symbolic passage. We understand that at the time Micah was written, Assyria was often used to represent everything that opposed God. It is believed that this passage refers to all of the evil nations from all the times of, of the world who would rise up to oppose God's people. But the Messiah would bring with him good rulers who would help him vanquish the evil in the world. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man, and the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from, from among you, and will destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. In Micah's words, God's kingdom will not be reliant on national borders or on physical weapons to maintain its identity, but rather it relies on God's power to do all of these things. In the end, the things that draw us away from God and into pagan worship, of which this entire list is included, um, these will all be destroyed. Those nations and people who would ignore God's warnings and repeated attempts to bring righteousness to them would also experience God's wrath. Hear what the Lord says. Arise and plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. This is where Micah's courtroom style of preaching is clearest, when the accounts are given and cases are made. It would be to mankind's detriment that God would call on the mountains to be the, the witness. Because the mountains are where the altars are built, this is also where the proof of their guilt is found. In his anguish, God asks his people to proclaim the wrongs that he has done to them, why they would abandon him for cruel deities. Of course, nobody could ever answer his question, because he had only ever shown patience and loving guidance toward them, giving every opportunity to repent and return to him. Micah is one of these times that he's giving them that opportunity. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gigal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Each of the places and people that Micah mentions here are important to the history of God's people. They're the places where the covenant was made with them and confirmed, showing his loving care and willingness to protect and warn his people. In spite of these things, the people would forget about God and continue to do evil. But when they were confronted about it, instead of repenting, they would merely give sacrifice after sacrifice, hoping that God would forget about their evil and leave them alone. But God doesn't want sacrifices, and he never did. What he wants are changed lives. He wants people to simply be righteous. Indeed, it's impossible to faithfully follow God without his transforming love in our hearts. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I will strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you desolation and your inhabitants of hissing, so that you shall bear the scorn of my people. This is a proclamation of Israel's guilt against God. King Omri was one of the kings over Israel, and during his time his people fell deeply into idol worship. Omri's son, Ahab, was the most wicked king of all the kings to reign. If the people were following the examples of these two leaders, they weren't just in bad shape. They were ripe for punishment. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his souls. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of men like a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Micah is in despair at this point. He cannot find a single righteous person anywhere he looks. Honesty and righteous living are difficult to find even today. People always seem to find a way to rationalize their sins, especially in a society that idolizes those same sins. This was Micah's issue as well as ours. 
as unrighteousness invaded even the family and destroyed this core of society, at this point, the only way to purify God's people was to bring judgment upon them and restore them with the remnant. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundary shall be far extended. In that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. This is actually one of the more hopeful sections in Micah. It shows that God hears and saves those who love him when trouble arises. The confidence that God, uh, in God that Micah demonstrates here is remarkable, but it's not brought about by anything special. It's just simple faith. It's also a symbolic example that with patience and obedience during punishment, God will forgive people of their sins and restore them. In our own trials, there will be times when it will be easy to just give up because it will feel too difficult. But those are the times that are meant to restore us to God, where we are told to turn away from our sins and not to turn away from Him. Shepherd your people with your staff the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest, in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, and their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds, They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. These are the last verses of Micah, and in them we see God's great mercy in abundance. It demonstrates that God does not forgive grudgingly, but he rejoices when his people repent. All throughout Micah, he calls the people to righteousness, pointing out all of the things that are wrong with their society, all of the things that they should not be doing. Micah calls the people to be righteous and live under God's guidance, being merciful, just, and humble. These are the three things that we see coming from the book of Micah that we need to do. We need to be just, as God is just. Our justice can be as simple as treating people we interact with fairly or as large as opposing the oppression of those around us. We need to be merciful, as God is merciful. Our mercy can be as simple as forgiving those who wrong us in small ways 
or as large as praying for all of those who harm us in any way, both large and small, to experience God's overwhelming love. We need to be humble as God humbled himself for us. God didn't need to give us any warnings. The covenant was already broken and he chose to warn them about that. He didn't need to. He humbled himself to point out their wrongs. And then he humbled himself even further to bring us Jesus. Our own humility can be as simple as surrendering each day to God or as great as surrendering every aspect of our lives to him. These three things are only a few of the aspects of God's righteousness that he expects of us. But as with any journey, we need to start with only a few steps. So as we bring this service to a close, I'd like you guys to pull out that green connection card again. And on the back of it, you'll notice a This Week I Commit To. These are just a couple of the suggestions that I have after reading Micah. The first of which is to memorize Micah 5.9. This is a verse that tells us and encourages us and reminds us that our fight is not for nothing. What we fight for, what we believe in, is supported by God. The second thing is to read Micah. I read it for you today, but it always helps to go through something more than once. I have a suggestion for people to pray for social injustice. That's one of the biggest issues that Judah and Israel faced at the time was the people in power oppressing and destroying those who were not in power. But this is something that happens every day in our own world. It happens both in our country and in foreign countries. But as Christians, we don't live by those boundaries. All of our brothers and sisters are all the people of the earth. And we should be praying for them and for their social justice. And the last thing I would suggest is for people, for you to pursue the godly righteousness, to be just, to be humble, and to be merciful. These three things are just, like I said, they're just three parts of God's righteousness. Just three of the things that he asks us to do and to be. With these commitments, I would ask that you give an offering of yourself this week. Listening to any of God's words, be it the gospel talking about Jesus' birth, or warnings like the prophets, an offering of yourself is more substantial to God than just money. As we pray, I'd also encourage you to think about your general offering, because we do kind of need those two. <laughs> anyway, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you humbled, knowing that, that you have given plenty of warnings, that you have given signs and guidance to us, your people, who are imperfect, who by our own power are not capable of even talking to you. And yet you show us the mercy by giving us these warnings and giving us the opportunity to come before you. Lord, I would ask that this message reaches the hearts of everyone who has listened so that something in their lives might change and that they would be more righteous in your eyes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather as, as believers. And I would ask that through each of us, you do great works 
today, tomorrow, the rest of the week, the rest of our lives.